James chapter 1, verse 26. James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. True faith, a faith without works, true faith works. A faith without works is dead. That's what we talked about last week. That kind of faith will not save a person when they stand before the Lord of glory and judgment. That kind of faith will not save a brother or sister in need. The church has been saved to be a people zealous for good deeds, deeds of mercy, deeds of righteousness. The kind of faith that is a profession only kind of faith. A faith that does not meet the needs of others. A faith that, unlike Abraham and Rahab, fails to demonstrate itself in good works is a worthless faith. It is a dead faith. So also for the person who doesn't bridle their tongue. The one who fails to bridle their tongue has a faith that is worthless. A faith that is dead. In our text for this morning, James will continue to elaborate on this thought. Specifically, he turns his attention to the tongue. The tongue, our speech, tends to have a significant impact both on our lives as individuals as well as the life of the community. And to the point of James 1.26, again, those who are seeking a pure religion, a true religion, those who seek to live out a faith that works for the glory of God will also seek to bridle their tongues. I'll read chapter 3 this morning for context and we'll focus in on verses 1 through 12. James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large, they are driven by strong winds, And are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, And set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, 
There will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before you again this morning, before your word. We pray as Jesus prayed that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. I pray that you'd let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. The whole point of this section is to encourage the church to tame their tongue. Bridle your tongue, James says. Bring your tongue under control. Those who tame the tongue, as we'll see in this passage, exhibit a mature faith by their speech. That's chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Those who tame the tongue exercise control over their whole body. That's chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. And those who tame the tongue express the blessing we are called to give. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. They exhibit a mature faith by their speech. They exercise control over their whole body. And they express the blessing we are called to give. Let's look at that first point in verses 1 and 2. Those who tame the tongue exhibit a mature faith by their speech. Again, verses 1 and 2. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Well, again, true faith works. That's the overall theme of the letter. And true faith works no matter the circumstances. James has made clear in chapter 1, again, that sometimes those circumstances will include trials He's also indicated that the Lord uses those trials to bring us to maturity. In other words, James is not only interested in clarifying what true faith is, he's also interested in encouraging those who have true faith to have a mature faith. Here in chapter 3, James indicates that one of the evidences of a mature faith is the ability to tame your tongue, to exercise control over your tongue. And the reality is that the one who's able to exercise control over their tongue can exercise control over their whole body. But we know the tongue is a controlling theme in this section. So James begins this section by referring to those in the congregation who ought to be more spiritually mature and who ought to be able to tame their tongue and whose the impact of their ability to tame the tongue affects the entire congregation. In this case, it is the teacher. The teacher's ability to tame their tongue is so significant in the eyes of God that, as James says, they will receive the stricter judgment. Again, verse 1, he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Well, the idea of judgment has been an underlying theme for some time now in the letter. I pointed that out last week and that it will continue throughout the letter. There is a final judgment coming for all of us, even for the believer, And our confidence in the final judgment as believers is not that we'll escape examination, but that ultimately mercy will triumph over judgment in our case because of the mercy granted to us in Christ. 
Nevertheless, each of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That truth ought to compel us to take care with our lives, both in word and in deed, seeking to do all for the glory and good pleasure of God. Teachers, those who labor in the word of God, those who serve the body of Christ by studying and exposing the congregation to the truth of God's word, these will be held in stricter judgment. The reason why should be obvious. According to Ephesians, God has designed the body of Christ such that pastors and teachers are gifted to the church in order to equip the church for the work of service. Pastors and teachers are gifted in order to bring the truth of God's word to bear in the life of the congregation. And the process of this equips the congregation to actually do the works that God prepared beforehand for them to walk in. That's Ephesians chapter 2. If the pastors and teachers are not adequately prepared themselves, if they're not good students of the word of God, accurately handling the word of truth, as Paul says to Timothy, or if they're too busy seeking to communicate what makes the church feel the most comfortable, what will tickle their ears, then the church will not be equipped to do the work of ministry. That is why Paul says to the church at Corinth, if I weren't or Galatia, if I or an angel from heaven were to preach to you a gospel other than what has been preached, let him be accursed. And I say to you, as your pastor, if I or another man stands before you, or even an angel who claims to have been sent from heaven comes to you with a message other than the true gospel, let him be accursed. Get him out of there. Perhaps you're unsure of what you heard Perhaps you're unsure if what they're saying is true. Then you need to be like the Bereans. Paul said of the Bereans, or it says of the Bereans, that they were faithful to examine the word of God to see if whether Paul was speaking the truth or not. So you make sure that you examine God's word. That's why when I come up here and I present the word of God to you, I refer back to the text you might think, why is he reading the Bible again? Why is he reading the verse over and over again? I'm reading the verse because I want you to see where I'm getting the point from. Because if I'm not giving you what the word says, then what am I up here for? Back to the text. We do know, do not know why James calls out the teachers here. It seems to be a bit abrupt in the course of his conversation question of whether or not he's addressing a specific issue or simply using the teachers as an object lesson one possible explanation is that James references teachers to address the one who he sought who sought to excuse the one who had faith in the prior section if you remember last week we looked at James's argument that faith without works is dead it's a useless faith it's a faith that's incapable of saving anyone and we saw an opposing argument in chapter 2 verse 18 but someone will say you have faith and I have works I suggested at this time that this could have been a teacher who sought to justify a member in the congregation who should have helped someone who was poor but instead chose to say to them go in peace be warm and be filled the teacher may have offered this to appease the consciences of the rich in other words you have faith you told them something that's full of faith and I have works, meaning I'll go ahead and meet their needs, so you're okay. You don't have to worry about it. While we may not actually do anything to help 
your poor brother or sister in Christ, I clearly see your faith active by your words. James's point in that section was that the word-only kind of faith cannot actually save anyone. Now back to our text, James is working to address the issue of the tongue, but wanted to first remind the teacher that those of us who teach will receive a stricter judgment. And he even warns them. He says, not many of you should become teachers for this reason. You've clearly misunderstood that faith and works are inseparable. Hear this, you who teach such things, you will receive a strict judgment from the Lord because you've misunderstood the truth. And you're putting your brothers and sisters in danger. The Lord's not going to overlook that. Our God is holy. So he expects for his people to be holy. We get a picture of this from Isaiah chapter 6, and that was our scripture reading for this morning. If you remember specifically when Isaiah was faced with the holiness of God, he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. And we remember we saw those angels that are flying about the throne of God, and their whole job is just to proclaim the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Remember what Isaiah said in response to this great vision. Woe is me. Woe is a curse. He pronounced a curse upon himself because he said, I have seen the king. When face to face with the glory of God, Isaiah doesn't worship. He's, he's too constrained by what he sees. He is broken by what he sees. He says, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. His whole occupation revolved around his ability to speak well, to proclaim the word of God. And yet it was his lips that he knew of that made him unfit to stand before the king. And he did not see himself fit for anything but for judgment until the Lord had purged him of his sin. As the angel used a burning coal from the altar and placed it upon his lips. And after that, he says, here I am, send me. I think that's a good picture of the stricter judgment that comes for those who proclaim the word of God. Ultimately, this is why I study. This is why I labor in the word of God. I know that someday I'll stand before my Lord and I'll have to give an account for every word that I've said before you. I will have to give an account for if I have accurately proclaimed the word of truth. I've had someone question whether or not I was preaching the word of God with grace. I've been a part of some ministries where the senior or preaching pastor would have immediately dismissed such a claim solely on the basis of their own confidence in their teaching. This person would have quickly dismissed any word that questioned his ability to preach or teach. In fact, I heard him say so in so many words when a couple who left the church did so with some choice words about how the church handled people in their particular stage of life. And I suggested that perhaps there's something we can learn from what they said. And he immediately said, no, there's nothing we can learn from them. I thought that was a little strange, that there's nothing that we could learn from them. I mean, they didn't say it in a spirit of unkindness. They just suggested that perhaps there are some things that we could do better. 
Similarly, a different time when I took a different view on a topic that he had preached on at some point, he merely referred me back to his teaching on the topic to correct my thinking. This wasn't a primary issue. It had nothing to do with the deity of Christ or the doctrine of salvation. This was a, maybe even a third-level issue. I just disagreed. But in his mind, there was no point in me disagreeing because he'd already laid down the law on it. He'd already, he'd already studied it, and he preached on it, so he just referred me back to his sermon. Well, I'm not that guy, and I don't want to be that guy. I just want to make sure you guys know I'm not that one. So if you have an issue with anything that I say, come and talk to me about it. Let's have a conversation about it. I know that there are some issues that many who have studied the word of God longer than I have have a different opinion on. Now, the primary issues I'm I'm not going to be flexible about. The primary issues pertaining to the deity of Christ and our salvation, I mean, those are things that, I mean, you're not a Christian if you don't believe certain truths. But the secondary issues, the third level issues, I mean, we can talk about. I was a bit hurt when the person came to me with their concerns about my preaching, but I mean, it was more than just their concerns about my preaching. I was concerned about whether or not I was honoring my Lord because I know I'm going to have to stand before him someday. And I don't want to stand before him on that day and hear anything but well done. And to be clear, the whole lot of you may affirm my preaching, and certainly that's not insignificant because God affirms our giftedness through one, of one another, right? Nevertheless, everyone may stand up and affirm my preaching, but what is more important in my mind is what the Lord will say concerning my preaching. Because I know I'm going to have to stand before him and face his judgment someday. Now back to the point of the text, those who teach will be held to a higher standard. Some people aspire to be up in front, to have a giftedness that brings them to the fore, but it is indeed a fearful place to stand. Those who teach ought to have a mature faith, not a perfect faith, meaning this person will not be perfect in every way, but they must have a mature faith, a faith which truly works to tame their tongue, not in prideful arrogance, but in humility, exercise control over what they say, because they'll be held to a strict standard before the Lord. Moving on in verse 2, he says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. He says, For we all stumble in many ways. James includes himself in this we, indicating again that even teachers are not perfect in an absolute sense. We're not talking about absolute perfection. But the reality is that the Lord's expectation for the control of the tongue applies to all of us. And that's where James's thoughts are moving. If anyone thinks he is religious, he said in verse 1, and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In verse 2 of chapter 3, he says again, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, anyone doesn't matter if you're a teacher or a student, the pastor or the one sitting in the pew. The goal is to be a person who does not stumble in what they say, one who is able to tame their tongue. This person, the one who does not stumble in what they say, is a perfect man, a mature man. We talked about before that the tongue is an indicator of the heart. If you want to know what is in a person's heart, give them time and opportunity to speak. 
What they say and how they say it will tell you what's in their heart. Jesus said that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks, Matthew 12. Those who are righteous speak from the righteousness in their hearts. Those who are wicked speak from the wickedness in their hearts. James is after more than that in this passage, however. He's not simply speaking of the tongue as an indicator of what's in the heart. When you speak, we see and hear what's in your heart. Rather, James takes it a step further. He says that one's ability to control the tongue is an indication of spiritual maturity. Think about that for a moment. It's much more difficult to control the tongue than to control one's deeds. People may lack the opportunity to sin with their hands, There may be external constraints to prevent someone from sinning with their hands in accord with their own desires. But those same constraints do not exist when it comes to the tongue. The primary constraint from the tongue comes from within. We may not be able to restrain ourselves from reaching out and slapping the person who has done something to upset us, right? We may be able to. Perhaps there are others around us, and so that constrains us. Perhaps there is physical distance between us, and so that constrains us. But it's much more difficult to hold back our tongue when we've been offended by someone or when we're angry about something that has happened. We may be able to keep ourselves from physically pursuing an adulterous relationship with a coworker, but with our lips we may easily flirt with them. We may not break into a jewelry shop to gain more wealth because we're discontent with what we have, but we may lie about our wealth and possessions and appear to be better than we are. And we may speak down about those who have things that we want in order to make ourselves feel better about what we have. One's ability to restrain the tongue is an indication of an internal compulsion to control one's sinful impulses from within. Remember, James made clear earlier that sin starts with inward desires. Those who have those inward desires but who also have an internal compulsion to resist those inward desires to display the fruit of new life. It is the new life that Christ gives to us as we are brought forth by the word of truth. That desire to restrain sin as opposed to letting sin pour forth from our mouths unchecked comes from the Lord. Moreover, if one is compelled from within to restrain their words from pouring forth in sin, they're much more likely to also restrain their other actions from that same internal desire from the Spirit of God. James says, again, at the end of verse 2, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. He's going to elaborate on that thought further in our next main point. Again, those who are able to tame the tongue exhibit a mature faith by their speech. Second, they exercise control over their whole body, verses 3 through 8. James is elaborating on this thought further. He says, if we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame, no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
The one who's able to exercise control over their tongue is able to exercise control of their whole body. The tongue is like a guide for the body, in other words. James gives us some illustrations. Verse 3, again, we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us and we guide their whole bodies as well. And whether or not you've ever ridden a horse, you know what that means. You know what that looks like. We've all seen that happen before. Riders on horses have reins that they hold on to, and those reins are connected to a bit that is placed into the mouth of the horse. And so when the rider pulls on the reins, it's moving the bit back and forth and causing the horse to go one way or another. That small item, that bit that is stuck in the mouth of the horse controls the entire thing. Verse 4, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Again, you don't have to be a sea captain to understand that. Most of these ships, in particular in their day, just had a very small rudder at the back and underside of the boat. And the captain of the ship or the one who was guiding the ship had some sort of lever or maybe a steering wheel to control the very small rudder that's at the back of the ship so it could guide the ship one way or another. And at the end of verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. I remember all those commercials about Smokey the Bear, right? Only you can prevent forest fires. Trying to tell campers all the time, reminding them over and over again, any fire that you have, you got to make sure you put it out because all it takes is a small spark. And it can light the whole forest. James's conclusion, the beginning of verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. The tongue is the bit for the horse's mouth. The tongue, our tongue, is the rudder for the ship. The tongue, our tongue, is a small fire that sets ablaze the entire forest. The tongue is a small member of the body, yet such a small and seemingly insignificant part of the body has such a great impact on the body and on the life. James is trying to get us to understand this truth. And he goes on to explain, to describe the impact of an unrighteous tongue. He's like, listen, the tongue is a dangerous thing. It can be a dangerous thing. And I want to help you to understand this. Look at verse 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is so set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It is a fire in the sense that it is a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is like a small flame that, again, kindles a forest fire. One word from the tongue can cause unrighteousness to spread like that, to spread like wildfire in one's life. We've all experienced this before. We've tried to believe the proverb, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. But we all know that that is untrue. Words do hurt. Words can produce wounds which, if left unchecked, will never heal, but instead tend to fester. How many a child's confidence was ruined for life by some joke or jesting on the playground from one's peers or by harsh words from one's parent or another authority figure? How many marriages are ruined by discouraging words, hurtful words, hateful words, angry words, bitter words? How many churches have been split over words, words of disagreement over simple things, matters of preference, worship style, carpet color? Which ministries are funded more than others? And we could go on. 
Words can and do hurt. They wound. Words of unrighteousness are destructive. That's why James says earlier in chapter 1 that we must be slow to speak. He goes on again in verse 6. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. This is similar to Jesus' words in Matthew 15 where he said that it is is what comes from out of the mouth that defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Unrighteousness pours forth from the mouth out of a heart, and that is what defiles the body. That is what stains the body. James says it sets on fire the entire course of life. Again, the entire course of life is affected by unrighteous words, by words of anger, bitterness. Again, disunity, discord, dissolved marriages, emotional trauma. Broken relationships and the like are the effect of unrighteous words, an untamed tongue. He says it is set on fire by hell. There are a couple of different ways to think about this. One way that is suggested is that James is using this term euphemistically. In other words, James is saying that hell sets the tongue on fire. The tongue has become a tool of hell. One author said it this way. That it is set, that is said to be set on fire by hell indicates that the tongue is, can be Satan's tool, fulfilling hell's purposes to pollute, corrupt, and destroy. Another way to think about this, what James says here, is in consideration of hell as a place of judgment. And again, we've been talking about throughout James is the idea and the reality of the judgment of God that is coming. The word that he uses there for hell is the place of judgment that's frequently referenced in the New Testament. One author says it this way. The word literally means the valley of Hinnom, a deep gorge southwest of Jerusalem where trash, garbage, and the bodies of dead animals were ex- and executed criminals were dumped and continually burned. The location had originally be used, been used by Canaanite and even some Israelite worshipers to sacrifice their children as burnt offerings to the pagan god Molech. When that heinous practice was permanently halted by the godly king Josiah, the place was considered to be unclean and wholly unfit for any decent usage. It therefore came to be used as a garbage dump where all the filth of the city of Jerusalem and surrounding areas were taken to be burned. Because the fire burned all the time and maggots were always present, the Lord used Gehenna, same word for hell, to represent the eternal, never-ending torment of hell, the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is the same word that James uses in our text. Ultimately, the end of this kind of speech, in other words, the end of those whose tongue is a world of unrighteousness that stains the whole body, sets the entire course of life on fire, the end of that kind of life is hell. It is a place of torment. But again, the impact of the tongue on the body and the life is significant. The impact of an unrighteous tongue is destruction, destruction of relationships, destruction of opportunities. Even wars have been started by unrighteous tongues. The tongue can easily be a tool of Satan and if left unchecked will lead one to face the wrath and judgment of God. We know that the tongue can and should be used as a source for good. We'll get to that later. But the potential for harm is astronomical, and that's James's point. Therefore, the, ta- the tongue must be tamed. Though James admits that no one can do so successfully on their own. Look at verses 7 and 8. 
For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And verse 7 is a general statement of mankind's rule over the animal kingdom. Every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. This is not obviously in an absolute sense. Jesus is not saying that we bring grizzly bears into our home and make them domesticated. But he's speaking in generalities. Generally speaking, mankind has, has, is the dominant creature on planet Earth. We have subdued the planet by and large. But though that is true, though so many strong and mighty beasts have been subdued by mankind, no human being can tame the tongue. We have all these laws against hate speech. We have these laws to combat libel and slander. We have developed new politically correct terminology to address the issues of shaming. We've developed this cancel culture to discourage those who may disagree with the culture from speaking out. We encourage free speech. We encourage tolerance. We say that as a society we've grown to develop morally and are pursuing the pinnacle of moral liberalism, which is supposed to be for the good of our common society. Yet for all of our so-called advances morally, technologically, sociologically, no human being has ever been able to tame the tongue. That was true in James's day. It is true in our day. The tongue is a restless evil, he says, full of deadly poison. It's a restless evil. It does not sleep. It continually goes on and on. I read this quote the last time we talked about the tongue. One author said this, it's been estimated that an average person will speak some 18,000 words in a day, enough for a 54-page book. 18,000 words in a year that amounts to 66, 800-page volumes. Does many people, of course, speak much more than that. Up to one-fifth of the average person's life is spent talking. That's crazy. I previously referenced Proverbs 10, verse 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lip is prudent, lips is prudent. When there are a multitude of words, it says, there's no lack of sin. And James says that the tongue is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. The tongue is also pictured here as a poisonous coiled snake ready to strike. Its venom is powerful and quick. And there's no antidote. The tongue must be tamed. It is a small guide for the whole body. Though it is small, the effects of an unrighteous, untamed tongue is great. It stains the body, the individual, as well as a larger body of people it impacts. Its consequences, its impact is on the entire course of life. And for those who have not mastered it, the end result is hell. The tongue is a restless evil. The sheer volume of words that we speak throughout the course of the day, week, month, and year almost assures that at some point we will sin with our mouths. And that deadly poison, that sin with our lips is like poisonous venom from a, a snake bite. And so again, the tongue must be tamed, but we don't have the strength to tame it on our own. No human being can tame the tongue. Thanks be to God that those of us who are in Christ are not dependent on the strength of humanity. We're not dependent on our own strength. 
When a person receives Christ, they become a new creation. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Consequently, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, if you've been raised up with Christ, if you've been given new life in Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He says Christ is your life. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. He says, put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Put it aside, Paul says. You've been given new life. Instead, put on a compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness. Put on love. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs, whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus for his glory. In other words, before you open your mouth to speak, you need to be thinking, is this going to glorify Jesus? Is this going to make his name great? One author said this, a transformed nature will produce transformed behavior. New behavior involves new speech, speech that corresponds to a saved and sanctified life and that reflects the holy nature of the one who has given the new life, end quote. You may be struggling with taming your tongue. You see the damage that it does and has done. Remember that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You're not the same old person that you were before. And so you ought to put off the old self and put on the new self. You ought to walk in the newness of life. You are able to obey the words of Christ because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, because God has given you new life for that very purpose. Again, that's the whole point of the letter of James. True faith works because true faith is an extension of the new life that God grants to his people. As Paul said in Philippians 2, God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To will, to desire, and to work, to do for his good pleasure. God is at work in you for that. I had a conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses the other day. Came to my home, knocked on my door, and uh, I led out with the fact that I'm a pastor of this church, and I figured that would be enough for them, but it wasn't. And so they kept going, and so I just went with it. The premise of their presentation had to do with inviting people to come to learn more about God. They wanted to know what, did he, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do we need to do in order to have a better society, in order to, you know, for people to get along. Well, you need to come and learn about God and learn about Jesus and learn about the Holy Spirit. And I thought, well, that's great. But what about John chapter 3? God said to the most learned man in all of Israel, you will not see the kingdom of heaven unless you're what? Unless you're born again. And I said to them, you guys are all about the kingdom, but you're not going to see the kingdom and you're not going to help anyone else to get to the kingdom unless they're first born again. Have you been born again? And the one guy that I spoke to said he had never heard an explanation of what it meant to be born again before. And I thought, this is the teacher. This is the one they're sending around to recruit people. 
in the name of Jesus, and he's never heard of what it meant to be born again. So I tried to encourage them and, you know, pray for them, and I pray for them now, even now, that the Lord would help them to know the truth and that they would be born again because they will never see the kingdom of heaven without, of it, without it. They didn't understand and they couldn't understand that truth because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Because a new birth affects all of life. We need the new birth. We need the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to move us from spiritual death to life, to bear fruit in our lives, one of which is self-control. One part of that fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And it is that self-control that we need in order to tame our tongue. That's our confidence as believers. Our confidence is ultimately not that we're able to do it on our own, that we're able to be better people, but that God is making us better through his spirit dwelling in us. And if you don't know yourself to be a Christian this morning, but you know you're struggling with taming your tongue, hear the word of God from 1 John chapter 1. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you say the same thing about your sin that God does, I am a sinner, I've broken God's law, and you say to Jesus, I need your help, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from that sin. Back to our text, James gives us one further reason why we're to tame the tongue. Again, those who are able to tame the tongue exhibit a mature faith by their speech. They exercise control over their whole body. And third, they can express the blessing that we're called to give. That's in verses 9 through 12. James says, with it, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who've been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt, a salt pond yield fresh water. He says, with it we bless our Lord and Father. Again, with the tongue. God has given us the tongue in order to bless him, in order to praise him, in order to glorify him. We gather together every Sunday morning in part for this purpose, to bless our Lord and Father, to speak of his glory, to pray for him and for his provision to sing of his greatness, to teach and admonish one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts with thanksgiving toward him. We've been called as a church to make disciples of all nations, Matthew chapter 28. Peter says again this way to, that we've been called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's First Peter 2. Our tongues exist for his glory, to honor his name. That's what they're here for. If that's what they're here for, we dare not use them to curse those who are made in the likeness of God. James calls us out. Again in verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. He says these things ought not to be so. Yes, we are a people with unclean lips, and we dwell among a people of unclean lips. But the Holy One, the King, has purged us from our sin. He's made purification from us. He has set us apart now for, to use our lips, the lips that he has cleansed, that he's purged for his glory. 
We cannot use our mouths in one breath to speak of the king of creation, the Lord of glory, the one who Isaiah saw as high and lifted up to proclaim his greatness as the angels do. And again, in the same breath, turn around and speak curses and bitterness to one another. That should not be so. He says it's unnatural. It's just as unnatural as verse 11, a spring pouring forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water. That doesn't happen. The spring either comes from a well of water that is salt water or a well that is fresh water. You don't get both from the same spring. That would be unnatural, unthinkable. A fig tree doesn't bear olives. It's called a fig tree because it bears figs. A grapevine doesn't produce figs. It's called a grapevine because it produces grapes. It's unnatural. It doesn't happen. It is unnatural for those of us who use our lips to bless our Lord and Father to also use our lips to speak bitterness, anger, malice, hateful words towards one another. He says, my brothers, those of you who have been brought forth by the word of truth, those of you who have a pure and undefiled religion, you cannot allow praise and hateful words to come from the same mouth. True faith works. One who has true faith will exercise control over their tongue. The strength of faith enables one to exercise control over their tongue. The question is, what do you use your tongue for? What do you use your speech for? Paul addresses these things in Ephesians chapter 4. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fit for the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. He says the only kind of words that should come out of your mouth are words that will give grace to those who hear. No other kind of talk, no other kind of speech. The only kind of words that should come forth from your mouth, Christian, brother, sister, are words that will give grace to those who hear. There are no exceptions to that. It's not okay just because you were having a bad day. It's not okay just because you didn't feel good or you were going through some difficulty. No unwholesome word or speech should come from your mouth. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed in the day of redemption. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander should be put away from you. Be kind to one another, he says. Tenderhearted, forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 4, verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person. We put salt on our food to preserve it. We put salt on our food to make it taste better. He says, your speech ought to be a preserving agent in the life of others. It ought to give a good flavor to life. It ought to be life-giving. Does that describe your speech, Christian? This is what your Lord expects from you. 
Our God is holy. And so our words ought to be holy. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, which is true. Your word, which sanctifies us. We pray, Father, that you would make these things true of us. The things that we have talked about this morning as we think about the fact that true faith works. True faith trusts. True faith is obedient. True faith honors the Lord Jesus. True faith exhibits the love of God. True faith manifests itself in words of grace, words of mercy, words of kindness. Father, would you make those things true of us? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.